Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Thank you for attending our Valentine's Day live broadcast of this class of the group learning program. I'd like to wish you a very peaceful and wonderful Valentine's Day wherever you are and whoever you're spending it with. It's a day of love and ensuring that the people around us that we care for understand that. So I would like to just say to all of you that I love you very much and thank you for learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings. Today is Sunday where we're in our group learning program studying the teachings in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And we're doing a very special series of classes here as we get ready to embark in a chapter-by-chapter investigation of the teachings in this book where we'll start in March at chapter one and continuing through the entire book for six months. But what we've been doing is kind of taking some special topics and really diving in deeply to kind of give an overview and kind of a survey of the path to enlightenment. We started with the five hindrances to enlightenment, which was two weeks ago. Last week, we discussed the first two steps of the eightfold path, which is right view and right intention. This makes up the wisdom of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment. This is the core teaching of Gautama Buddha, where everything else that he taught on this path to enlightenment kind of integrates and plugs into the Eightfold Path in one way or another. So we're spending some real quality time to just walk through the Eightfold Path in three individual sessions. So just switching over to where I started last week, which is this image of the Eightfold Path. Because what we're doing here is we're going through three specific classes where we're spending time really dedicated to uncovering and investigating each individual aspect of the path to enlightenment. Typically, the talk on the path to enlightenment is just one class session. But because it's so important, I'm actually spending three class sessions to discuss it. Last week, we talked about right view, right intention, which makes up this category of wisdom. And remember, right view is all about the three universal truths, the four noble truths, understanding that we are the cause of our own discontent mind, that it's craving, desire, attachment, where the mind is longing with a strong eagerness craving permanence that is the cause of all discontent feelings. Discontent feelings are painful feelings, pleasant feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. 
like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, fear, pleasant feelings are like happiness, excitement, elation, and neither painful nor pleasant are like boredom, loneliness, shyness, kind of an uncomfortableness in the mind. Because this path to enlightenment is to eliminate discontent feelings from the mind so that you reach this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. The mind is no longer shaken up by these discontent feelings. It's liberated. It's liberated from the pollution that pollutes the mind, like craving, desire, attachment. When the mind has this longing with a strong eagerness and it wants certain pleasant feelings based on these external things, if it gets those things, then the mind is happy, excited, elated based on some condition. But that's just temporary. And the mind falls into sadness or anger or frustration or some other feeling. Or if the mind has this longing with a strong eagerness, this craving, desire, attachment, and it doesn't get the object of its affection, then it's going to experience painful feelings. It's going to experience sadness or anger, frustration, all those other painful feelings that I talked about. And then sometimes the mind doesn't really know what it wants and it becomes bored or lonely, right? So this unenlightened mind is really plagued by discontentedness, the mind just moving around to painful feelings, pleasant feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, and all of these feelings are temporary. They're impermanent. As they arise, they will eventually cease to exist. And one of the problems is, is that a lot of human beings in the world are taught that we should be pursuing happiness right? We just want to be happy. We just want to be happy. And a lot of people are pursuing happiness, but that's a kind of self-defeating goal because happiness is impermanent. It's not possible to attain permanent happiness based on some condition like wealth or money or certain job title or having a certain family, a wife, a kids, what have you. So if you're in this process of searching for happiness and you think that a certain income or a certain level in your bank account is going to accomplish that, it's not true because that's impermanent and your happiness is not going to be permanent. If you've been taught that getting a certain job title is what's going to create happiness in the mind, well, it might create some happiness temporarily, but that job title is impermanent. Therefore, that happiness is going to eventually fade. Those pleasant feelings are going to eventually fade. Or if you've been taught that your kids or your wife or your husband or your boyfriends and girlfriends or clothes or a car or some kind of external object is going to create long-term happiness, then you're basically on a journey that you're never going to complete because as soon as the mind becomes happy based on some external condition, then eventually that fades because of impermanence. Whatever arises is going to cease to exist. So what Gautama Buddha's teachings do for us in this right view is helps us to look internally and see that all of these external things aren't going to create long-term happiness because of impermanence and we're actually causing our discontentedness because the mind has this longing and strong eagerness 
for all these external things. And rather than blame others for our anger, or rather than blame others for us being lonely, or rather than blaming others for us being guilty, or feeling one way or another, or feeling like we're being talked down to, all the feelings that are in your mind, they're being produced by your mind. They're not being produced by these external things. But see, the mind doesn't understand that. The unenlightened mind has this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. It thinks these external things are causing the internal feelings. So if you feel like someone's talking down to you, or you feel like someone has made you angry, or you feel like someone or something has made you frustrated, that's wrong view. What you need to do instead is accept responsibility for these feelings and realize that it's your own craving, desire, attachment that's actually causing these discontent feelings. And because you're causing them, you can actually eliminate them. And that's what this whole path is about. So anybody on this path would need to firmly understand, be well-established in right view, not just understanding it intellectually, but practicing it on a daily basis that when certain feelings arise in the mind that you don't attribute it to other people or you don't attribute it to external things, but you completely own those feelings and those emotions and you look inward to try to understand what it is that's causing them because it's not these external things. And if you do that through the Buddhist teachings, the more you learn and practice his teachings with guidance, you can eventually get to a point where you completely eliminate all this discontentedness and the mind gets to a peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy that is unconditioned. There's no conditions that create this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. It's actually eliminating the mind's longing for external conditions, allowing the mind to go inward that it attains this mental state permanently. So it's no longer affected by impermanence. Okay. So we talked about that quite a bit last week and we went into a lot of detail. If you haven't seen that talk yet, it's on YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, which is Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. And you can look at that and you can learn from that because we went into right view, but we also talked about right intention. Right intention is all about harmlessness. This whole path to enlightenment that the Buddha teaches, it's all based around the natural law of gamma. Gamma meaning cause and effect or action and result. Essentially the result of your decisions. So the discontent feelings that you have in the mind and all the various things that are happening in your life, either wholesome or unwholesome, is as a result of your decisions. And if you're causing harm in the world, harm is going to come back to you. And likewise, if you're putting out good, wholesome things, good, wholesome things are going to come back to you. But the problem is, once again, is this ignorance, this delusion, this unknowing of true reality that the mind doesn't understand this natural law of gamma just like it didn't understand the natural law of gravity when it was a baby. 
and it kept falling down and falling down and life was somewhat miserable for us when we kept falling down and we couldn't stand up on our own two feet well because you are unwise and you don't have the wisdom of this natural law of karma you're making decisions in the world and putting out harm that because of that harm and those unwholesome decisions harm is coming back to you and part of that harm is the discontent feelings but there's also other things that happen to us as well so what we're going to be moving into today now that we understand that we're responsible for all our feelings and we need to practice harmlessness non-ill will towards all beings is now move into the moral conduct where we talk about right speech right action right livelihood because it's this conduct that we're doing that if we don't purify our conduct then we're going to still be causing harm in the world and harm's going to still be coming to us so right intention is like the thoughts right the thinking the intention and now we move into the speech and the actions and our livelihood and we're going to be walking through this today step by step and as you have questions you can post those into facebook youtube or our zoom virtual classroom and one of our moderators will be sure your question gets asked or if you're in zoom you can raise your hand electronically and you're able to get help asking your question directly or any follow-up questions this next part that i was interested to share is just to kind of remind you that today's class the 14th of february is part two of a three-part series last week was the first part today is the second part and then next sunday is the third part of really diving into this eightfold path so now let's go into talking about what is right speech right action and right livelihood because this makes up the moral conduct of our eightfold path and what it is that we're actually going to be studying today the right speech we're going to expand this and go into a lot of detail using the actual words of Gautama Buddha but just kind of generally so that you know what we're talking about just like when I talked about right intention this is the thoughts this is the thinking this is the intention in the mind what right speech is very generally is it's all verbal conduct all communications right during Gautama Buddha's lifetime it was all verbal conduct right because that's all that they had was speech so that's why it's called right speech and it's actually spoken words verbal conduct but in today's society we actually communicate with what we could consider speech in a lot of other ways besides just verbal conduct we actually communicate through verbal conduct through text messages through chats through posting in social media through emails we have a lot of different ways that we communicate the spoken word or what would normally be a spoken word might show up in a text or a chat or a phone conversation or an email or a post in Facebook so when we're talking about right speech and we're going to get into it here in a moment with Gautama Buddha's words understand that all of these teachings about right speech they don't just apply to your spoken words your verbal conduct as during Gautama Buddha's lifetime 
but it's really all communications, okay? Right action is all bodily conduct. How we move throughout the world with our body, our actions, this bodily conduct that we have. And we're going to go into the bodily conduct. And then right livelihood is associated with the conduct of supporting and sustaining your life, essentially like your occupation, or if you may be a stay-at-home mom or dad or something like this, or you work in volunteer activities or things like this. So how are you sustaining your life above and beyond the intention, speech, and actions? All those things come together essentially, and you're now practicing a certain livelihood in order to support yourself. So we're going to go through what the Buddha talked about for each one of these, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Remember, everything that we're going to be discussing today, and really everything on this entire path, is all about harmlessness. Harmlessness, doing no harm to other beings. Because if we harm through our speech, our verbal conduct, our communication, or if we harm through our actions, our bodily conduct, or if we harm through our livelihood, this harm is going to come back to us. So if we go around being hostile, angry, and aggressive to people with our speech, then that's how people are going to be with us. Or if we go around lying or gossiping or slandering, which we're going to get into, then that's how people are going to be with us, right? Or if we go around with our bodily conduct and hurting people with our bodily conduct, then that's going to cause us harm as well. Or through our livelihood of sustaining our life, if we base our livelihood into some harmful activity that is harming other beings, then that harm that we're causing through our livelihood is going to come back and harm us. This is the natural law of gamma, and it's our decisions that are leading to these things. Right now, if you've never learned the Buddhist teachings, you are unaware of the natural law of gamma in the way that the Buddha described it. Therefore, when you speak, you are harming people. Therefore, your bodily conduct is potentially harming people. Your livelihood may potentially be harming people and you just don't know and you're just unaware. That's the unknowing of true reality or the ignorance. So the way that we clean this up is through learning and practicing the teachings we gain wisdom. We gain wisdom in these teachings, and then we can clean up our decisions that we're making so that we clean up our life practice. That's why this book is called Developing a Life Practice, because by learning the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, you're then able to make conscious decisions based on a tried and true methodology of deeply understanding this natural law of gamma and by you cleaning up your conduct with wisdom around this natural law, now you can practice these good wholesome teachings on a day-to-day basis, not causing harm to others. Therefore, harm is gradually not going to be coming to you either. But you would need to know these things through guidance with a teacher. You wouldn't be able to just go out and clean up your gamma or the results of your decisions without guidance from a teacher because you're unknowing of true reality. You don't know the natural law of gamma. That's what a Buddha does. A Buddha 
awakens to these teachings on their own, understanding the natural law of karma in detail, and then through their mind having eliminated discontentedness on their own and being able to very clearly see the natural law of karma in ways that other people can't, a Buddha can now explain it in a way that will help guide your life. There's nothing that I'm going to share with you today that is, you know, when this happens, do that. When this happens, do that. Because there's no permanent answer of what you should do in any particular situation. Gautama Buddha's teachings aren't that way. The way his teachings are is their general guidance, where the Buddha is essentially pointing the way and saying, if you're interested in cleaning up your life and cleaning up your conduct, cleaning up the decisions that you're making, here's the way to do it. And if you choose to learn and practice that, then you can see the truth for yourself. Because remember, nothing that we share, nothing that I share, nothing that the Buddha shares should ever be believed. So everything that I share with you today, don't believe any of this, but learn it, reflect on it, and practice it. And when you're doing that, then you'll see that the teachings actually work. But if you just learn intellectually and that's all you do, and you never move it into practice, then it's not going to improve your life because you're not actually practicing the teachings. So don't believe anything that I share with you. Learn about it, reflect on it, which we'll do some reflection in class today, but you may need to do some more outside of class, and I would encourage you to do that. And then you need to start moving these teachings into practice to clean up the decisions that you've made in order to develop your life practice to clean up more and more of your gamma and make really good wholesome decisions. So let's move to the first aspect that we were going to talk about, which is right speech. Okay. Right speech. We're going to use the Buddha's words here. Normally I teach this without using the Buddha's words because I have his words memorized, but because we're taking such a deep dive into the full path over three sessions, I thought what I would do is bring in the Buddha's words so that you can actually see exactly what he was teaching. And all of this is in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, which I give away for free as a PDF, or you can get a printed copy if you like. So all of this is in the book for you, but if you'd like to take notes or you would like to go investigate this in print form, you can. But I thought that since we're taking a deep dive here, that I would bring in his words, word for word for word, so that you can really understand what it is that he's teaching. And these are from the Pali Canon, which is the most complete source of his teachings that we've had handed down to us from his lifetime. So when he describes his eightfold path and he goes through and he talks about it word for word for word, Here's how he describes right speech. And what bhikkhus? A bhikkhu is an ordained male practitioner. So these are his students. So and what students is right speech? Refraining from lying. Refraining from slander. Refraining from harsh speech. Refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. Okay, 
So here, this is just a real general introduction to what right speech is in his Eightfold Path. Because if you're lying to somebody and you have a history of lying amongst your friends, your family, your coworkers, people are going to uncover that about you and they're not going to trust you. And you're not going to be able to get good projects at work. You're not going to be able to have deep relationships. People are going to be lying about you. You're going to find it very difficult in life if you go around lying to people. And because you're lying, there's going to be harm that comes back to you. You're going to find it very difficult to have and maintain relationships. Same thing with slander. Slander is like publicly disparaging people in order to kind of knock them down and bring them down. Whether it's true or false, what it is that you're talking about, it doesn't matter. Even if you're speaking about the truth, but you do that publicly in order to disparage people and knock people down, this is slander, just damaging somebody's reputation. And if you do this, then it's going to cause you harm. There's people that if you slandered publicly, they might actually try to come kill you. They might even hire a contract killer to come kill you or your family. Or they might have connections to your boss and they might end up getting you fired or some other thing, right? So if you go around slandering people, you're causing harm to them. So now they're going to be interested in causing harm to you. This is the natural law of gamma. It's going to come back to you. It doesn't necessarily mean just because you slander, slander is going to come back to you because, yeah, that probably is what's going to happen. But it can even take on a more sinister role where someone might actually try to have you murdered or killed or maybe try to kidnap your kids or get you fired from your job or who knows what. Right. So this is why it's part of the natural law of gamma that if you're causing harm, harm is going to come to you. Same thing with harsh speech. If you speak really harshly and aggressively with people, right, with really harsh words, choices, really harsh tone, right, really harsh tempo in your speech, people aren't going to find it enjoyable to speak with you. People are going to find it very difficult to listen to you. It's not going to feel well to be a friend with you. Right. So you're going to find once again that through your harsh speech, your aggressive tone, your hostility, that you're going to have trouble making friends. You're going to have trouble with your family members, whether it's your life partner, your children, your mother, your father, your siblings. And you're going to have trouble with your business colleagues because you're speaking harshly to people. And that harshness is going to come back to you because you're conditioning everyone's mind that this is how you speak. So they're going to speak the same way to you. And then the Buddha talks about frivolous speech here. This is kind of like unpurposeful or unbeneficial speech, kind of like idle chatter. Because if you were just in a break room, for example, or if you were at lunch with your colleagues or your family or you were driving in a car with people and you were just yada, 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 yada. This is harmful to people, right? Sometimes when we're off this path and we don't know about these teachings, we can just be so self-absorbed that we just yada, 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 without any purpose, without any benefit. 
And people are listening to that. And it's just like, oh my goodness, when is this guy going to stop talking? It's almost hurting your head. You may have done this yourself to people, or you might have been around people that have done this with you. And if you're around that kind of person, you're probably not going to be interested in having conversations with them because there's just all this idle chatter, this frivolous speech. And that frivolous speech is causing harm because people have to listen to that and it's unpurposeful, it's unbeneficial. And now you're gonna find it once again, difficult to have personal relationships. You're gonna have it difficult to have relationships in your family, and you're gonna have difficulty in your business relationships. Because what you've gotta develop in terms of speech is something that Thai people call barami. Barami is one who people listen to. When you speak with barami, it means that people are really interested to listen to you because you have something interesting to talk about or you speak in a way that is beneficial to others. There's purpose behind your speech. So in Thai society, there are certain elders in the village that people go to because they have barami. They're the one who people listen to because they've established themselves as someone who doesn't lie, who doesn't slander, they don't have harsh speech, they don't have frivolous speech, they have wisdom to be shared with others, right? So people turn to these people and they look to these people for guidance and advice and help in their life. Well, if you develop this barami or the one who people listen to in your personal life, in your family life, in your business life, you will be very successful. And success doesn't necessarily mean monetary wealth. We may need to define what success is, but you will be very successful in helping and influencing and accomplishing goals in your life, both your personal life and your professional life. So what this right speech is going to help you understand is how to develop this barami or the one who people listen to. This is the simple teachings in the Eightfold Path about right speech. But the way that the Buddhist teachings work is they layer on top of each other, layer after layer after layer after layer. And one of the things that the Eightfold Path does is it kind of introduces a certain layer of knowledge, a certain layer of understanding, a certain layer of wisdom that is kind of almost surface level. And then in other parts of his teachings, he dives deeper into the various aspects of this path. So while on the Eightfold Path, when he speaks about right speech, this is all he says, just this one sentence, essentially. But then when you look deeper into his teachings and other parts of the Pali Canon, you're going to run across something that he taught, which is called the five factors of well-spoken speech. And when you run across these five factors of well-spoken speech, it's the next layer down into his teachings, which is really expanding this whole understanding of what is right speech. So if you just are learning on a surface level and you want to kind of clean up some of your speech, you just focus on what he said there in right speech. But if you really want to get to the heart of the natural law of gamma and what would produce the very best results for you in your life in terms of speech and developing this barami, then you will learn and practice 
the five factors of well-spoken speech as a much deeper teaching, which will elevate your practice and bring you closer and closer to not causing harm through your speech. I'm going to read this to you, and then we're going to reflect on this, and I'll show you how to do that. So let me read this to you first. The five factors of well-spoken speech. Bhikkhus, possessing five factors, speech is well-spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach by the wise. What five? One, it is spoken at the proper time. Two, what is said is true. Three, it is spoken gently. Four, what is said is beneficial. Five, it is spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Possessing these five factors, speech is well spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach by the wise. Okay, now let's go through each of these five factors and then we'll tie some other things into this. Okay, this first factor, it is spoken at the proper time. Remember, we're not believing anything the Buddha says. We're not believing his teachings. We're looking at them. We're investigating them. We're reflecting on them. And we're practicing them to see if they're true. So you can reflect on this. Think about times where you've not spoken at the right time. Not speaking at the right time is like you're interrupting people. Or people are interrupting you. Right? If, if you have experienced this as part of your reflection either you speaking at the wrong time, which is your speech, so you need to speak at the right time, which is what he's talking about. But when you haven't spoken at the right time and you've interrupted people, did it go well? Or when people interrupted you and spoke at the wrong time, how did it feel? You didn't like it, right? So what the Buddha is saying here is you need to speak at the right time and ensure that you're speaking at the right time. And part of the right time is not just in terms of space and time that you don't interrupt people, but you've also got to be aware of your mind. Because if you've got anger and frustration and irritation in the mind, or you've got certain discontentedness that is quite strong in the mind, it's not the right time to go talk to your life partner or your children when you're just furious about something. Because that's not going to turn out well. So here, this general guidance, the Buddha's not telling you what to do. He's giving you guidance. He's saying, be sure that you're always speaking at the right time. Therefore, you're not interrupting people and you'd be very well aware of your own mind that you're speaking at a time that it's the right time for you, not just the right time for the other person, but also the right time for the other person. If you know that your wife or your children are very angry or frustrated and just irate, is that the right time to go talk to them about something that's really important to you or to them? So you've got to be aware of your own mind to be able to speak at the right time. You've also got to be aware of other people's minds and you've got to be aware that you're not interrupting people. So if you've got something really important to say to somebody and you would like to have a certain in-depth conversation rather than just having that conversation on the fly and kind of assuming that it's the right time what a wise practitioner might choose to do is say honey i've got something really important that's going to impact 
our kids' school for the next five years, would this be a good time to talk about that? And if they say no, right now I really need to get this project out in the next three hours or else I'm going to have a lot of trouble at work and I really need to focus on that. Can we talk later this evening? That would be a better time. Great. Let's talk then. Right. So you may actually need to check with somebody if you've got something really impactful that, you know, is going to be a challenge for them to wrap their mind around. A wise practitioner might actually check with somebody first before you have a conversation with them. Right. So you've got to be aware of the proper time to have conversation. And remember, reflect on this, how you can see that if you don't do this, if you don't talk when your mind is calm and peaceful, if you interrupt people, if you are talking to someone who's already angry or frustrated, this is going to cause harm. And therefore, the conversation is not going to go well. Likewise, the second factor, what you say is true. If you lie and you're not telling the truth, then this is not going to be helpful for you in your personal and professional relationships. How could you establish this me, the one who people listen to, if you're always lying? People aren't going to be interested in talking to you and believing what it is that you say or even having any trust that what you're saying is helpful. So you've got to make sure you're speaking the truth. Gautama Buddha practiced this so closely that even when he told a joke, he wouldn't tell a lie. So even when he was telling a joke, it was a truthful joke. It was some kind of witty humor that was actually truthful. He never even lied when he told a joke. So be sure you're always telling the truth. The Buddha says, be a truth speaker, one to be relied on, not a deceiver of the world. Because if people get used to you always telling the truth, always telling the truth, always telling the truth, month after month after month, year after year after year, and you're always telling the truth, then people just know every time this person opens their mouth, it's always the truth. And for you, you don't have to have a guilty conscience. If you're trying to always sort out the lies in your mind, then it's going to be very difficult for you to have conversations with one person or another because you're trying to muddle through all of these different lies. But if you're always telling the truth, then your mind is very clear, very concentrated because you're not having to sort through the lies that you've told in the past and figure out what you should be saying now, right? So just always tell the truth. This third factor is whatever you say, make sure it is spoken gently. This relates to your tone, your tempo, and your word choices right? This is something I said in a recent class where I said, like a Buddha wouldn't say to somebody, you're a fool or you're stupid, right? We say things that we're brought up to say amongst various people. But when we kind of look at the Buddhist teachings in this high bar of enlightenment, you know, you're going to have to clean up some of the things that you say, you know, you have to look at your speech objectively, And know that I'm sure that none of you are practicing this right now. All of these five factors. I doubt you're practicing this 100%. 
So you're going to have to be objectively honest with yourself and bring your conduct up closer and closer to this where your tone, your tempo, and your word choices are nice and gentle so that they're not harsh and you're not speaking harshly. The fourth factor is what you say is beneficial. This is purposeful speech, beneficial speech, so that when you speak, there's some kind of purpose and benefit, that it's not just frivolous speech or idle chatter, but there's real purpose and benefit behind what you say. This is what's going to help create barami for you, is because not only are you speaking at the right time, not only are you speaking truthful, not only are you speaking gently, but now your words are beneficial and they're helpful to other people, not just helpful to you and being self-absorbed, but they're actually beneficial to the people that you're talking with. And then this fifth factor is words that are spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Loving kindness is active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. Active goodwill or loving kindness is the opposite of hatred, anger, and ill will. So if you remember right intention, that second step, part of that was practicing harmlessness or non-ill will. So here, if you've got in the mind the intention of non-ill will and harmlessness, then when you speak, your speech should come from a mind of loving kindness where you have this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. Now, one of the things that you can do here is you can reflect back on conversations that you've had that have actually gone horrible for you and that didn't turn out well. And you can reflect on these five factors and you'll be able to see where you weren't practicing all five of these. You either weren't speaking at the right time, you weren't truthful, you weren't speaking gently, what you were saying wasn't beneficial, or you weren't speaking with a mind of loving kindness. And because of that, your conversation with that person or those people, it didn't turn out well. And that's how you don't believe these teachings. You reflect on them and you see how, yeah, when I speak harsh and aggressive to people, it never turns out well. Or when I'm being sarcastic and I'm just trying to rev people up. It's not with a mind of loving kindness. I don't have goodwill when I'm being sarcastic to people and it ends up backfiring on me. Or when I interrupt people, it always backfires on me, right? So you can reflect on this and you can see how these teachings are 100% true. And then conversely, you can look at conversations that went really well for you and you will be able to identify, aha, I spoke at the right time, what I said was true, it was gentle, beneficial, it was a mind of loving kindness. And also this last part that the Buddha talks about here, being blameless, not blaming other people. If you speak this way, you will see that this is wholesome speech, this is right speech, and the more you speak this way, you're not causing harm to others, therefore no harm is going to come to you. And it's going to take a long time for you to clean up your conduct. Even though you learn this intellectually today, you're not going to be able to snap your fingers and speak like this instantly. It's going to take you months to clean this up because you've been speaking the way that you have for so long, the mind has been conditioned to speak that way. 
But when you look objectively at your speech and you gradually improve it, and over time, many months and years, you're speaking this way with more and more people around you, you will start seeing the improved results because you've made the choice to improve your conduct. See, what we tend to do in the unenlightened state is go around and try to fix everyone else. And it never works because we haven't fixed our own mind. By you fixing your own mind and you improving your conduct and you speaking better to everyone around you, now by you doing that and putting that out into the world, that's what's going to come back to you more and more. This last part about being blameless, think about if anyone's ever accused you of something or if you've ever accused somebody else of something. If they didn't do it and you're just blaming somebody, then yeah, that went really bad, right? Because they didn't do it and you're sitting there blaming them for it. Or even if they did do something wrong and you start blaming them for it and making them feel bad and belittled and disparaged and degraded for just an honest mistake, then this isn't going to go well for you because you're blaming people. If you're blaming people, you're also not practicing right view. Because right view is all about accepting responsibility for your own conduct, right? If we go around blaming everybody for things that are going on in our life, then it's not my fault because I'm perfect and everyone else is at fault, right? And this is going to come across as ego and arrogance. So you've got to not only practice with these five factors that the Buddha lays out, but you've also got to ensure that you're speaking blamelessly, where you're not blaming people. And when the Buddha says that speaking this way is beyond reproach by the wise, the wise here are enlightened people or people that have wisdom. Whenever you hear him talking about wisdom or wise, he's referring to people who are really well on this path and essentially close to enlightenment. Because when somebody speaks this way, and they're always speaking this way, you will find that your meetings, your interactions, either interpersonal conversations, both personally and professionally, will go very, very well. And it's actually easier to speak this way. When you first get started looking at your conversations objectively of what's going well and what's not going well, it's going to take you a while to kind of improve your conduct and get to the point where you're speaking this way. But once you do, once you've upgraded your operating system, so to speak, and you're now functioning on this new operating system, it's a lot easier than going around speaking in the way that you were before. And the more that you speak this way and you know you're not causing harm to others, if somebody does have a negative reaction to you and you know you're nailing all of these five factors and speaking blamelessly, then you know that that's just their reaction, but you're practicing these good, wholesome teachings and you know you're not causing any harm in this situation because somebody else can still respond to you negatively. But at least you have the confidence to know that by speaking this way, you're not causing any harm and you don't have a guilty conscience. Because sometimes now, I bet when you have a conversation and it doesn't go well, you probably walk away from the conversation thinking, man, what happened? Was it them? Was it me? Did I say something? Did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? 
what happened right there? That wasn't my intention at all. I wasn't trying to blow this thing up. I was just trying to do something good. But this conversation blows up and you kind of walk away sometimes with a guilty conscience or even shamefulness. But if you're practicing these teachings consistently, month over month over month, year over year after year, and you have a conversation, you're going to see that more and more and more and more and more of your conversations are going to go well. And all of a sudden, you've got all these wonderful conversations and wonderful relationships in your life. But then when you have the occasional situation where someone blows up at you or they blame you for something, then you know, I haven't had a bad conversation with somebody in two or three years. And now, boom, this person like drops this bomb. You can walk away with confidence knowing that you practiced well there. Still reflect on it. Still see if there's anything you need to improve. But you can walk away without that guilty conscious, i.e. your mind won't be discontent because you know you're practicing well. So you've got to slowly bring your conduct for speech up closer and closer to this. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have on anything related to right speech. All right, David, we have quite a few questions. We'll start out with a question from Leota. What is a kind way to discourage people from attempting to share gossip with you? So I get these kind of questions a lot about what somebody should do in any particular situation. And the challenge with giving you any guidance on that is there's so many different variables involved. And I'm not in that relationship and I don't know all those different variables that you know. So to tell you and give you one permanent answer and say, oh, do this, and that's going to somehow work in every situation, it's not possible for me to do that because there's not just one right answer here. And there are so many different variables that only you have insight into. So the idea is, is that you learn these teachings and you work with them in a constructive way and you come up with an answer on your own in any given period of time. I can share with you some things that I do if somebody's gossiping, but it doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily apply in your situation. I've done two, three, four different things. If I'm in a conversation where somebody's gossiping and I don't know this person very well, or it's just kind of like a fleeting relationship and I'm able to do this, I might just walk away. That's one option, right? But that's not always the right option right? There are some situations where it's like my son and my son might have been gossiping in the past. And when he starts gossiping, I'll let him get it all out. And then I'll say, Bailan, it sounds like you're gossiping there. Is that something that we should do? Is that going to be beneficial for us? Right? So I might actually teach him a little bit because there's a different relationship here, different variables. Or I might be talking with a student, for example. And if a student's actually gossiping, I might actually give them a little bit of teaching there in order to help them. Or if I'm in a conversation with a close friend or a family member who I have a, a very close relationship to, and I know that they are open to understanding the Buddhist teachings, I might share some of the, the Buddhist teachings with them. But if it's an acquaintance or somebody that I don't know well, or it's a business meeting or something like this, sometimes the answer is just to say nothing and just be quiet. So there's lots of right answers here, all the way from walking away to completely being quiet 
to sharing a little bit of teachings with the person if there's somebody that you know that's open to the teachings. But then if they don't like it and they're upset with that, then I completely stop sharing teachings with them because you shouldn't go around trying to teach people. You should only teach people who ask you for guidance. There's one wrong answer here. The wrong answer would be for you to gossip, right? Because if you gossip, then other people are going to be gossiping about you. So your question is about what do you do if other people are gossiping? The fact is that we're not trying to change the outside world. We're not trying to change other people in any of these teachings. But some of those answers that I just gave you, yeah, I'm sharing teachings because it's my son, it's a family member, it's a student. These are people who are interested in learning the teachings with me. But in situations where it's an acquaintance or maybe you're at work, it's a business person, these people aren't in a relationship where you need to change them, right? What this whole path is about is changing your mind. So the wrong answer here would be for you to gossip. So the, the true right answer that's always right is for you to not gossip. That's the right answer, right? These other options that I share with you are just things that I've done in the ways that I've dealt with it to kind of move past the issue. We have a question from IA. Can you please explain, is there a difference between public shaming and spreading awareness, for instance, about an unethical company? I wouldn't share information about an unethical company because that's not my role. That's not what I would do. I may or may not even have all the facts. And by sharing that publicly, that is slander and it's only going to cause me problems. That's gossip. It's only going to cause me problems. If this company is truly causing problems in the world and they're unethical, they're going to get the results of that. And there's proper ways to handle that that doesn't include public shaming, which would mean you're slandering people or slandering a company or gossiping, right? By you taking on the role of public shaming or slandering somebody or a company, you're now making the decision to do that. And your decision to do that is harming another. Even if they're truly unethical, you're still harming them. Therefore, harm can come to you. So there's other ways to handle this. Maybe report them to the government, let the government handle it report them to some kind of oversight or regulatory committee or organization. There's all these other ways that you can still take action on it without you being the point person who's actually doing the public shaming or the slander, because that's not going to result in anything beneficial for you. I would also like to know, is it a good idea to ask close ones to point out if we are speaking harshly? Maybe sometimes we're too ignorant to accept it. You could if there's people in your life that you trust and you feel like would give you objectionable feedback. But also there's a certain amount of this that is perception, right? So you've got to have a really good awareness of mind and you've got to have some internal reflection. So what I used to do is when I would have a conversation like in a business meeting or something, in that business meeting maybe went horrible and it went really bad or a phone call and it went really, really bad. I would reflect on that conversation and I would look at all of these teachings and I would contemplate and ponder about 
what are the factors that I wasn't practicing so that I can see very clearly where I had work to do. And then that insight is really good for you because now you're independent. If you're relying on other people to tell you where you're not doing well, then you're attached to them and you don't have that inner reflection. You've got to get to a point where you're reflecting inwardly and you can improve and progress in your practice based on your own efforts, right? You shouldn't be relying on other people to tell you these things. But if you have somebody that can give you some insight, go ahead and do it. And conversely, not only did I used to reflect on conversations that went not well, but when conversations would go well, I would reflect on those too. And I would say, okay, I'm improving this. I'm improving this. Oh, this is good. That's why that went well. Now let me replicate that over more and more conversations. So this is where you've just got to be completely honest with yourself and develop this ability to look inward in an objective way and identify where it is that you're not practicing and where you are practicing so that you can continue to support these areas that you're practicing well and improve these areas that you're not practicing so well. And if you do that on your own without relying on others, your practice will progress in a much better way than having to rely on other people for that input. We have a question from BibLab. Sometimes a true statement is hurtful to another person. What can we do in this situation? The Buddha talked about the ways that he would talk and he would discuss. I think it was in this first book, if I remember correctly. If it's not in here, it's going to be in one of the books that we talk about. He talks about how if something he's going to say is agreeable and welcomed by the other person, you know, when he would say it, if it was disagreeable, when he would say it and these kind of things, you know, you've really got to look at what it is that you're going to say. And you've got to be sure you're hitting all five of these factors along with blameless because the speech isn't just that it's true. That's not the only factor, right? It might be true that one of your friends is an arrogant, egotistical, harsh individual. But if you just walked up and said that to them, is that gentle? Is it beneficial? Is it a mind of loving kindness? Right? Is it blameless? Right? It's not. So you can't just look at one factor and say, it's true. You know, what do we do in this situation? You've got to look at all these factors and make sure all these factors are being practiced at any one given time to ensure that your speech and your verbal conduct has the ability to not cause harm to others. Don't just look at the one factor of being truthful. Okay, David, does that advice apply when we're talking about perhaps white lies or perhaps when a friend asks how their outfit may look, those types of questions? Yes, you should not do white lies. There's no such thing as a lie that doesn't harm because all lies are going to harm and it's going to harm you because people are going to get used to you lying you're going to get used to lying and you're going to lie about bigger and bigger things. Your children around you are going to see that you're lying and they're going to start lying to you, your life partner, your friends, your family, your colleagues. There's no such thing as a lie that is unharmful. For me, I can see beauty in everything. So if somebody wears something and they said, hey, what do you think of this shirt? 
I can see beauty in everything and I can compliment them about everything. I don't have a preference of whether that shirt looks nice or it doesn't look nice. So I can always compliment them on anything because what's really important is that they like it. It doesn't really care what I think. The thing that they might be asking, how does this shirt look? I mean, you might not like it and you might want to tell a white lie. That's not good for your practice. Instead, what I would tend to do when I wasn't able to see beauty in everything, now I can see beauty in everything, but back then what I would do instead is I would always turn it around and I would say, oh, well, if you like it, that's what matters, right? So rather than try to lie and say, oh, you look great, you look wonderful, when in your mind you really don't feel that way, it's just turn it back around and say, well, I love your smile and your smile goes wonderful with that shirt right? You're not lying there. You know, you're seeing the beauty and everything. And that way you don't break down their confidence because the whole reason why they're asking you how they look anyway is because they're lacking confidence. So since I know that someone who asked that kind of question is lacking confidence, my mind turns to this loving kindness, this active goodwill towards all beings. And I'm just trying to build their confidence. So whether I like the shirt or don't like the shirt, it, it doesn't matter. What's important is that I help them build their confidence. So I might come in on their smile or their hair or some other thing. Thanks, David. I think that may be timely advice on Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, David, we're going to go to Bassam now for some questions on Zoom. Yes, uh, thanks, James. Uh, actually, there are many questions here on Zoom. Uh, the first question is from Emily. She asks, uh, me and my coworkers talk all day long about all kinds of things. Can you give different examples of frivolous speech and put that into other terms to, or give uh, many examples of what this might uh, look like in our culture today? Sure, frivolous speech would be like chit chat, unpurposeful speech, just yada, 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 yada. Now there's certain conversation that you need to have with coworkers and other people that is like, getting to know each other and discussing life with each other and kind of that's what it means to be friends is like your friend might ask you hey what did you do this weekend oh me and my family we went here we did this we really enjoyed a movie we had some fun doing this this is beneficial or purposeful because it's helping you to build this relationship with your coworkers or your friends or your family but with frivolous speech or idle chatter would be like, it's just kind of like bouncing around from topic to topic, kind of like useless, senseless speech that really has no real purpose behind it. It's just, you know, maybe self-absorbed talk, right? That's what kind of frivolous speech or idle chatter might look like. Okay. Uh, again, Emily uh, continues asking, is sharing uh, one's opinion breaks the five factors of speech? since it's not necessarily true and it's just one's opinion or maybe sharing our opinions is also frivolous well you have to look at this closely right this is general guidance and if your opinion isn't true if you're lying about your opinion then you know that wouldn't be the five factors of well-spoken speech and that's not going to turn out well for you so you've got to look and practice this and get examples of this. And this is where a teacher can be really helpful for you that you can kind of 
give a scenario, you can give a situation, a real life situation that you were in, and then your teacher can help you see these teachings more clearly. Because we can talk kind of hypothetically about this stuff all day long, but there's nothing like having a real world example of you know, what actually happened in the conversation and seeing that live about how that works. But if you're sharing your opinion and it's at the right time, it's truthful, you're speaking gently, it's beneficial because someone's asked for your opinion or it's a business meeting or something like that, and you're doing it with a mind of loving kindness without blame, then whether it was an opinion or not, then it's still these five factors of well-spoken speech. And where a lot of this happens and where you kind of see this real time is as you start practicing this, it's kind of like shooting an arrow and kind of steering the arrow in the air. So now that you know what these teachings are and you start practicing them on a daily basis and you see where conversations don't go well, you can start identifying areas where you weren't practicing these or where the conversations do go well. You can look and see how you're practicing these and you can kind of slowly get closer and closer to this ideal of right speech. And as you're doing that, it will become more and more clear and more and more apparent to you because you're practicing the teachings and you're working with it and figuring it out. It's kind of like being in a classroom and talking about biology out of a textbook all day versus going into the laboratory and getting your hands wet, turning on some you know, heat and using some water and using some chemicals and actually seeing how this stuff works. So being in the classroom like this and talking about it is fine and you need to do a certain amount of that but where you're really going to get the most insight and gain the wisdom behind how these five factors really work is through your practice and that's why that practice part is so important well uh, one more question from emily can you give me examples about what judgment is what it isn't and what it isn't judgment and how can one practice non-judgment it seems like judgment and speech go hand in hand. I think I probably share judgments more than I do actual truth. Something to ponder on. Yeah, a judgment would be where you're looking at somebody else in their conduct and you're trying to declare what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And then you put yourself above them thinking that what they're doing is unwholesome. This is judging them saying, oh, that person does this and that's not good. And, you know, they're, they're not the kind of person that I would be around, right? Or something like this. I'm just talking generally. This is putting yourself above them and kind of determining that their conduct or the way that they do things is no good and you're much better than that. That's what judgment is. I think what you are talking about there, it sounded like a little bit, Emily, is more your opinion where you're not trying to judge other people in their conduct and put yourself above them. But instead, you might be sharing your opinion on a project or you might be sharing your opinion of some effort or work activity that you're doing. If you're commenting on somebody else's conduct or behavior or what they should or shouldn't be doing in life, this is your judgment. Or if you say, oh, that person, you know, Bob's got ego and I don't really want to work on a project with Bob because he's got too much ego. This is judging Bob. 
And, you know, who are we to say Bob does or doesn't have ego? We need to remain neutral and loving and kind and non-judgmental towards all people. So when you start declaring somebody else to be a good person or a bad person, this is why I don't like those words, or if you consider something to be right or wrong, this is where judgment starts coming into play and we start putting ourselves above others with arrogance and that would be judging somebody. Okay, a question from Michael. He asks saying, where in the five factors of spoken speech on where appropriate would be where what we are talking about in our conversation is right and appropriate? If I'm understanding you correctly, what Michael's asking about is the content of your speech. Notice that Gautama Buddha doesn't talk about that. He doesn't talk about the content necessarily, other than it being beneficial. So there's nowhere in the five factors of well-spoken speech or in right speech that we're necessarily talking about the content. Because if you're following these five factors, the content that you speak about is totally up to you. So if I'm understanding that correctly, Basim and Michael, the Buddha isn't declaring what content is right or what content is wrong. The Buddha's teachings aren't about right and wrong. It's about, based on this natural law of gamma, what's going to produce the best results for you in your relationships when you're speaking in this way using the five factors of well-spoken speech. Okay, uh, one more question also from Michael. He asking, saying, how do you apply right concentration in right speech? Right concentration we haven't covered yet, but right concentration deals with singleness of mind. It deals with meditation and training the mind to be concentrated. So this whole path, you're practicing all at one time, right? You're not just mastering step one before you move into step two. As you learn and practice this entire path, you're practicing it all at one time. That's your life practice. So as you develop right concentration or this singleness of mind, it actually helps you in your speech because now you can really focus like a laser light on each of these individual factors and you can make sure you're hitting each individual factor. And I often talk about kind of being off the path entirely and also being enlightened. And then there's kind of like this transitionary period for months or years or maybe many lifetimes where the mind has to kind of gradually move closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. Well, if you've got right concentration where the mind is focused and you have clarity of thought and you have deep memory and these kind of things that come from right concentration, then as you're getting ready to talk and before you speak, you can really kind of gather your thoughts and really make sure you're hitting each one of these factors individually one by one and ensuring that what you're about to say is surely covering all five of these factors. Now, when you're in this transitionary period, you're going to mess up. You're going to think that you're actually speaking this way. You're going to feel like you're working towards that and you'll miss one or two of these and the conversation will go bad. But then you do that inner reflection, you look inward and you see which areas you need to work on and you just you know, move on to the next conversation. Maybe you need to apologize, maybe not. Maybe it was just a, a person that you don't really know. Maybe it was at a doctor's office or something like that. Maybe it's somebody you'll never see again in your life or maybe it is. 
So you need to go back and apologize, perhaps, but you need to just move on, live in the present moment, and just always work on refining these closer and closer and closer. Okay. And Nick here asks about what is the best way to speak softer? I have been in situations where my intent is 100% good and wholesome in efforts to try and help somehow when things or problems come up and the person feels it's harsh. I'm trying to figure out if my timing is off sometimes or just if the person is overly uh, sensitive. Can some people just be uh, too sensitive? I guess my question is uh, if I am doing right intention and I'm uh, somewhat mindful of uh, right speech, can my speech go wrong? Sometimes I just do see how and it can be buffering. Yes, that's why all of these steps are individual steps, Nick, because right intention, right speech, and right action are all completely separate and individual. But without the wisdom of this, when we're off this path and we don't know this wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, these things just flow and we don't see them as three individual distinct things. And oftentimes what happens is you might have all the best intentions in the world, but that's not in sync with your speech or it's not in sync with your actions. So oftentimes what I was finding as I was getting on this path and working through a lot of this stuff is my intentions were completely pure, but my speech and my actions weren't in sync with my intentions or my thinking. So you've got to make sure that that intentions that you have come all the way through into your speech and your actions. And I would suspect that right now they're not because you haven't been aware of these and you haven't been practicing these, that your speech is still harmful. And that's why you're not having the best results in all the different situations that you have. So you've got to make sure that all three of these are in sync, your intentions, your speech, and your actions. And when you do so, then you're going to see more and more wholesome results because you're making more and more wholesome decisions. But when these things aren't in sync, that's when the problems come about. Well, uh, Nick continues asking, how do you practice right speech when you feel others may be projecting? You need to maintain your practice at all times. What other people are doing around you should not affect your practice. Right now, it might be because your practice isn't really well established. You're just starting to get underway. So as you meditate more, as you learn more and more of this path, as it becomes more and more stabilized and you develop this life practice more and more, no matter what people are doing around you, you're still going to be practicing the teachings. If other people are projecting or other people have perceptions of you, if other people are gossiping or slandering you, that doesn't mean you should break from your practice because you need to be able to see the harm in you breaking your practice. It's going to cause harm in the world. Therefore, harm is going to come to you. If somebody else is projecting, if somebody else is gossiping, if somebody else is lying or slandering, it's affecting them. It's not affecting you. What happens is because of the self and because of the ego, that arrogance, when somebody lies on you, then you become potentially, I'm not sure, Nick, but that's what most people do is people get defensive. In a business setting, if somebody's disparaging your reputation, you can become very discontent if there's still a self there and if there's still arrogance there. 
rather than kind of skillfully working through this situation in a way that you don't cause harm, but it brings about a resolution to the situation with the wisdom of these teachings. So you've got to get to a point where you've learned and you're practicing so well and so consistently over a longer and longer period of time that your mind is unshakable. Your practice is unshakable and you don't break from your practice no matter what people are doing around you. Okay, uh, Holly has a question about uh, judgment. On the topic of judgment, what would you do if your child is eating unhealthy food and you want to encourage them to make better food choices? How could you do this without being harsh and without making them feel judged or bad about their choices? Right, so you're not judging the person there. So if your child is making choices to eat food that isn't healthy, you're not judging them and saying they're a bad person. What you do is you focus on the decisions that they're making. And as a mom, you help and encourage and teach them how to make better decisions. But if you talk about the person and them being a bad person, this is judging them as a person and, and disparaging and belittling them. When I talk to my son, we always talk about his decisions. We never talk about him as a person of being a bad person. We talk about this isn't such a great decision that you're making. Daddy would like to see you make some better decisions around your food choices. And there's no reason for me to get angry or for you to get angry around your child's food choices because by you becoming hostile and harsh or aggressive, the, your child's just going to shut you down and you're not going to be able to get through. You're not going to be able to be helpful in the situation. So that's why the Buddha is talking and sharing these teachings for you because it's going to help you be more influential in situations with like your children that if you practice all five of these factors, then you can skillfully talk to them and help them evaluate their decisions and help them see how to make better decisions around their food choices. But the anger isn't going to help anything. So that's where if you're unattached, right? If you have this eagerness, this longing, and you attach to your child, which most people are until you learn how to eliminate it. If you're attached and you want this so badly for your child to eat good food, then yeah, your craving is going to come through there. And there was somebody else who asked a question that I was going to mention this about too, is right now, if you're involved in conversations where you have attachment to people and there's people around you that you have attachment to and you want things to be a certain way for them, then even when you're practicing these five factors, your speech is still going to be tainted with that craving. And that's why you're working on meditation to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, so that your decisions of speech and how you have word choice and certain things like this isn't tainted with your own craving, desire, attachment. Because if you start speaking harshly to your child because you want things to be a certain way, you're not going to be successful in that situation. So by you working on eliminating your attachment to the child and realizing that it's a gradual process that you ate bad food when you were a child and you turned out okay, right? It's a process that everybody has to go through in order to learn how to make better choices and wiser choices about their food, then you can be patient and you can gradually train your child 
how to have better food choices. One of the things that I did with my son is, you know, we talked about it at different times. We've had different conversations at different times about food choices, and he still made some bad choices here and there. And then as he would make bad choices, he would end up getting like diarrhea or he would end up vomiting. And after he would vomit or after he would have diarrhea, I would sit him down and I would say, you know, how are you feeling? You're doing okay. And he was like, yeah, I was like, you need anything? You need any water or anything? No, I'm fine, dad. Well, Bailan, you know, now that I see you have diarrhea, you know, remember that conversation we had last week about your food choices? Daddy noticed that in the last day or two, you've been eating a lot of that food that we've been talking about isn't such a good idea for you to eat. Have you noticed that your choices of food hasn't improved since our conversation? That's what's led to this diarrhea that you're having, right? So this is part of your job as a parent to show them gamma, show them cause and effect. Show them action and results. Show them the consequences of their decisions, essentially the results of their decisions. Them eating bad food, them throwing up and having diarrhea, or them eating bad food and not having energy to go outside and play, or them eating bad food and getting sick, perhaps, part of their sickness, this is their gamma. And as a parent, as a wise parent, you can skillfully step in and help them see the wisdom. It's not gonna be one conversation and they immediately improve their diet. That's not what you did, that's not what I did, so you know your children aren't gonna do that either. So it's really this gradual progression of having multiple conversations with them, one this week, one two weeks from now, one a month from now, helping them to connect all this wisdom around food to the consequences that they're experiencing and show them that very clearly. And now you start eradicating that ignorance or that unknowing of true reality and they can start awakening to better food choices. But it's gonna take some patience on your part and helping you to get rid of your attachment to your children so that you can now skillfully help them and give them wisdom along this path over a longer period of time as they work to clean up their diet. Well, uh, Michael asks, is the factor of proper time includes one thought at a time, the speed and tempo of the speech? You can think of it that way too. Yeah, that's part of singleness of mind and right concentration. But yeah, I mean, if you're having a conversation with somebody and you're jumping around topic to topic to topic in just one sentence or one paragraph, that person's gonna have a really hard time following you in your speech. So you've got to have singleness of mind, which comes from right concentration. And then when you speak, be sure that it's a thought, it's a well-formed thought, and it's practicing all of these five factors so that now you can have a very beneficial conversation back and forth, and you'll be able to take it more slowly. Sometimes when we're in conversations and we're not practicing really well, you've already got your mind 10 or 20 steps from now and you're talking to someone who's not even on step one yet and you're trying to lead them to step 20 and you're trying to hurry up and rush through it and it doesn't go well. But you've got to recognize where you're at with this person, whether it's your children or a partner or a business contact and you've got to walk them through step by step by step because you might already be seeing step one through 20 
on any particular thing that you're trying to communicate, but this person that you're trying to bring on board with your thinking, they're still on step one. And you've got to have the patience to walk them through that little by little by little and taking your time to be able to do that. Okay, uh, thanks teacher. Uh, last question from uh, Nico. I have a question about judgment with an example. A friend of mine has big problems with his parents and brothers. Tell me about situations with them and asks for my advice. How can I help him without judgment about his parents and brothers? What is the difference between opinions and judgment in this situation? Okay, good point. So judgment in this situation would be your friend tells you about what's going on with his mom and his dad or his brothers, and you start disparaging his mom, dad, or brother and say, oh, your mom's so wrong. She shouldn't be doing that. How could your dad ever say something to you like that? You know, all that stuff you did for your brother and he's talking to you like that. Oh, he's wrong. That's judging them, right? But if you're going to give advice and you would like to give your opinion, it doesn't require you to judge these other people and say they're bad or wrong or disparage or belittle them. What you can do is say, well, in my opinion, what I suggest you do is really listen to your parents, sit down, have an open conversation and make sure you truly understand why they said what they said to you and then take your time to communicate what it is that you would like to say to your parents. Right. In that conversation right there, I didn't say his mom was bad or good or wrong or right. I just gave him some advice that will help lead him to a better result. Right. So we don't have to disparage people through judging them and looking down on them. We can just understand the situation and just give some advice to help move the situation in a good direction. Okay, David, we have a couple additional questions on Facebook. Michelle asks, does this apply to how to talk to animals? I may raise my voice or change my tone when trying to correct my dog's behavior so she understands. The, the short answer is yes. This should apply everything because the way that you would like to develop your practice is that you're the same way with all beings. That's the permanence of enlightenment. You don't speak to one being one way, another being another way, the president one way, the garbage collector another way. When you learn and practice the Buddhist teachings, you're the same with everybody. And that's one of the things that makes it so liberating is your mind doesn't have to figure out who am I talking to? What position are they in society? You know, how do I need to modify my conduct based on who I'm talking to? This will really rattle your mind and make you very muddle minded. So if you can get in the habit of talking to your animals in this same way, then it's going to transfer to your human relationships, too. So it's possible to train animals while speaking in this way. And you'll see that they'll actually respond better to you. I don't know if you've ever been in this experiment. When I was in fifth grade, we had the experiment where half the class planted plants in a seed and they all spoke really good to the plant and the other half planted seeds and spoke really bad to the plant over the course of many weeks. And at the end of the, those many weeks, the students who spoke really nice to their plants, being encouraging, supportive and uplifting, those plants actually grew much better than the plants who we spoke harshly to. And we gave the same soil, the same sunlight, the same water, everything. 
The only difference was the way we spoke to the plants. And it was very noticeable about the difference of how these plants grew. So your animals are the same way. Your children, your colleagues, your friends. The general rule to follow with right speech is if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Right? That's like grandma's rule. That's not Gautama Buddha's teaching. That's grandma's factor of right speech. If you don't have anything good to say, then don't say anything at all. So if you can do this with your dog or your cats or other animals, then you're going to be training your mind in that situation and you'll be doing the same thing, practicing all these five factors with human beings as well. And you'll find that it'll become easier and easier for you to do this. Okay, and we have a question from Tay. How do I practice how not to lie? Because as I'm a student, when I don't finish my homework, I have to lie for myself. You don't have to lie. You're choosing to lie. It's your choice. So you've got to choose to stop lying. If you see the harm that you're causing and the harm that's coming back to you, then a wise person would make the decision and see. A wise person would see the danger in going around lying. It's not going to help you. So be honest and tell the truth. You're choosing to lie. You don't have to lie. All right, David. We had a lot of questions on right speech. I think that indicates how important right speech is to our lives and on the path. Absolutely, James. You couldn't have said it better, or I couldn't have said it better. It's just so important. We harm so much through our speech, whether it's news broadcast or Facebook post or chatting or commenting. I mean, our public discourse amongst human beings nowadays has degraded so significantly that it's almost impossible for two people who have a difference of an opinion to talk politely with each other, right? Another golden rule here is you should be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings, right? And even when people are disagreeing with you, nowadays our public discourse and our interpersonal communications have gotten to a point where if people disagree, that's like a bullseye and we now need to attack. This isn't going to result in anything good for you. It's just going to break down your relationships and make it really difficult for you in your life. So you've got to not only train in these five factors of well-spoken speech, but you've got to get to the point where you're comfortable with people disagreeing with you And that's okay if someone has a difference of an opinion and you're not sitting there forcefully trying to get them to agree with you. So get comfortable with disagreement because of impermanence. It's impossible for 100% of the people to agree with you 100% of the time. So if every time somebody disagrees with you, you attack, then you're always going to be discontent and you're always going to be causing harm. So Our speech is just so utterly important. And the better you get at speaking properly, it just becomes easier and easier. So this next part that I was going to share with you is actually from the book that I wrote. But I'm just going to skip over that since we had so many questions today, which is fine. I'm not attached to discussing this. So you've got this content in the book in Chapter 5. And I'm just going to skip over it because we've already talked about this anyway. So I'm just going to move right into right action. 
okay? Right action is the fourth step of the Eightfold Path. The fourth step, right action, the Buddha describes it in this way. He says, and what bhikkhus is right action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. So here, once again, he's giving you kind of a certain layer of understanding as it relates to bodily actions. If you kill, if you take someone's life or another being's life, an animal, it's going to cause harm to that being. Therefore, harm is going to come to you. Same thing if you steal. This is a bodily action. And if you steal, take what's not given, then harm is going to come to you. And if you have sexual misconduct, and we're going to talk about what sexual misconduct is when we get into chapter seven. Chapter seven, the five precepts, the Buddha explains very clearly how we can cause harm through our sexual conduct. And he explains it very, very clearly in a way that I've never seen anywhere before. So I look forward to sharing that with you in chapter seven. But these are three things that are going to cause massive harm if we kill, if we steal, or we cause harm through our sexual misconduct. But that's not the only layer of harm that we can have with bodily actions because there's other things we can do too. Notice in right action, he didn't say, you know, don't punch somebody in the face. But we know that if we punch somebody in the face, that's a bodily action that's going to cause harm. Therefore, harm is going to come to us. Those people are going to attack us back or we're going to go to jail or something like this, right? So when you're looking at right action and exactly what the Buddha says, remember, he's got different layers of teachings here. So if you go to the next slide, James, what I do in the book, Developing a Life Practice, is I bring in some of the other teachings from other parts of his teachings to kind of help you truly understand what is right action here. Because it's not just these first three of killing, stealing, and misusing sexual conduct that would cause harm. There's this other activity of taking substances that cause heedlessness. This is a bodily action that you could take that if you took substances that cause heedlessness, it's going to cause harm to the physical body and it's going to cause harm to the mind. And then the same thing with gambling as well. If you gamble and you're gambling based on trying to win money for a game of chance, this can become very addictive and it can suck you in. And now you don't have the funds to support your life or the life of your family. So this is another bodily action that can cause harm. We go into detail about this moral conduct when we talk in chapter seven, the five precepts, I go into it in a lot of detail. This is just kind of an introduction and kind of an overview to kind of help you survey and see what's ahead in the path. But in the book and in the future talks that I'm gonna do, I'm gonna break down each one of these and some others in a lot of detail so you can see individual decisions that we make as a way that they can be harmful or unharmful in each one of these categories. The overarching teaching here under right action, if you boil all this down, is don't cause harm through your bodily actions. 
anything with your movement of the physical body, anything with the movement of this physical body, don't cause harm to others. Because if you do, harm's going to come back to you. So if you're hitting your children, if you're hitting them and disciplining them with hitting, this is causing harm to your children. And there's other ways to train children and teach them how to have good conduct without hitting. Because I guarantee you that through hitting your children, it's putting fear in them. It's going to take away their self-esteem. It's going to take away their confidence. And they're going to fear you. And as they get older and older, and then you need them to take care of you. Well, if you've taught them that when you disagree with something or you don't like something you hit, then when they go to school and when they come home, they're going to be fighting because they haven't learned problem solving skills. They haven't learned wisdom. And when you get older and there's problems with you in your old age, what do you think they're going to do to you? That's your gamma coming back to you. So you've got to learn how to not cause harm through your bodily actions. And what this means is you're going to have to increase your wisdom and you're going to have to find more and more creative ways to impart wisdom into people like your children and other people around you where you're not causing harm with your bodily actions and you're able to influence people through your speech, right? So by practicing better speech and all these other teachings, you'll find that you don't need to harm anybody with your bodily actions and doing so is only going to cause harm to you because it's going to come back to you. So let me see what questions you guys have around right action. We have no questions at this time, David. Okay, let's move on to the third and final step that we were going to talk about today, which is right livelihood. Remember, livelihood is all about how we choose to sustain our life and our daily activities. So the Buddha gave a very simple description of right livelihood in the Eightfold Path as that first layer, but then in other parts of his teachings, he expands upon it. In the Eightfold Path itself, he just says very simply, in what bhikkhus is right livelihood? Here, bhikkhus, the noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood, right? So he doesn't really expand upon it in the Eightfold Path because he's layering his teachings and getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, if you start looking around on other parts of his teachings, he starts describing livelihood in different ways. So here's kind of one that is really explaining what is wrong livelihood. And I'll read it to you and then we can talk about it and give examples. Bhikkhus, a household practitioner, should not engage in these five trades. What five? Trading in weapons, trading in living beings, trading in meat, trading in substances that cause heedlessness, and trading in poisons. A household practitioner should not engage in these five trades. Well, Gautama Buddha said this, and this is his guidance. But now, considering we've had 2,500 years since his life, we can actually take these trades that he's talking about and we can look at it and we can see how if we do these things, it's causing harm in the world. So therefore, harm is going to come to us. So none of what I'm sharing with you 
are commandments or rules or sins, okay? What he's sharing with you is the truth. And because it's the truth and you can learn this and reflect on it, you can see how if you did any of these things, then it's going to cause harm. And therefore, harm's going to come to you. So let's look at trading in weapons. Trading in weapons is essentially selling things like swords and knives and guns and missiles and things that would kill other beings because weapons are meant to kill other beings. If you sell weapons into the world, you can see how this is going to cause harm to other beings. It's going to be used, your trade, your livelihood, the way that you're sustaining your life is based on a product that is going to be used to kill others. If you look at the families that are behind the Remington firearms or Smith & Wesson firearms and things like this, if you research these families, they will tell you and you will be able to see on the internet how they're haunted by the ghosts of the people that have died by their weapons. If you look at the people that are killing with weapons, but that kind of falls into this other, these other areas. If you look at people that are doing these kind of things, they have a lot of problems mentally with PTSD and other things like this. So things like selling weapons are causing harm in the world and harm is going to come to you. And you're going to see that your mind and the situations that you encounter are going to be problematic in your life. Same thing with trading in living beings. If we trade in living beings, this would be human trafficking, right? This would be like selling animals, like puppy mills and things like this. This would be selling slaves, right? All of these things have been done and are currently being done in the world. And there's others as well. These are just a couple of examples. If we do these as a livelihood and we attach our income and the sustaining of our life to selling living beings, then we're going to be causing harm in the world. So therefore, harm is going to come to us. So if I was a prostitute, for example, and I sold this physical body for sex, then there's going to be STDs. There's going to be probably guilt and shame in the mind. There's going to be arrests where I'm going to probably go to jail and have problems legally. There's going to be a certain social aspect to this that if it's found out, it's going to cause me harm in my social life, right? So selling living beings is going to cause harm. If you were uh, selling living beings like a slave owner or if you were human trafficking people or you're selling animals into the world, this is all causing harm and therefore harm is going to come to you in one form or another. Similarly, that should be trading in meat. Trading in meat means you have to kill in order to sell the flesh of some animal or other being in order to sustain your life. Well, this trading in living beings and trading in meat, we have a perfect example right now of how this has caused harm because this is the whole way that COVID-19 came into the human world is because of a market that was selling living beings and trading in meat 
this virus jumped from the animal world into the human world. And this is now causing harm all throughout the entire world. And this is because we as human beings caused harm to living beings through selling living beings and through selling in meat. And because we were in close contact with this virus through this interaction with living beings, it's now jumped its way into the human world. The natural law of gamut, there is no entity that's punishing us for this, right? This is just the way things work. And this is what I say that Gautama Buddha didn't explain the harms that are going to come about if we didn't follow these teachings. But because we haven't followed these teachings in the world, we can look at his teachings and look back and we can see how by not following these teachings that it's causing harm in the world and therefore harm is coming to us. Similarly, substances that cause heedlessness. If I sold drugs, for example, and I stood on the street corner and I sold crack cocaine or cocaine or heroin or other things like this, this is causing harm to people. Therefore, harm is going to come to me. Well, what's going to happen? I'm probably going to get robbed. I might get murdered. I might get hooked on the substance myself. I might go to jail, right? I'm probably going to be very fearful. The mind's going to be very discontent, always looking over my shoulder, right? I'm going to have to hide the money, and that's going to create fear, right? There might be a certain amount of guilt associated with this, right? So by selling substances that cause heedlessness as a livelihood and connecting my existence and sustaining my life to that, it's causing harm in the world. So therefore, harm is going to come to me. And then the same thing here with poisons. Poisons are meant to kill and harm others, other beings. So if we sell poisons, then harm is going to come to us. So this is how you can reflect on this. And hopefully you guys aren't actually in a livelihood that's doing any of these things. But if you are, now that you've got this wisdom, you can slowly over time clean up your practice. Just like you need to clean up your practice with right speech and right action, if you are involved in any of these livelihoods, you can gradually clean up your practice more and more and more where you're practicing more in line with these teachings so that you don't cause harm in the world and harm won't come to you. So let me pause and see what questions you guys have. We have a question from IA. Does trading weapons include, for instance, shops selling kitchen cutlery? No, because those are not considered weapons. They're not something that we would, I mean, they could be used as a weapon, but their intention is to eat with food. If someone chooses to use it as a weapon, that's a personal choice. That's their wrong action. But in terms of what you're doing, as a occupation selling kitchen cutlery, that's for the purpose of a kitchen. Okay, we'll now go to Basim for a question he would like to ask, and then for the rest of the questions on Zoom. Sounds good. Okay, uh, thanks James. Uh, teacher, uh, do you think that uh, not helping people or any being who are in need for help goes against the Eightfold Path? There's no obligation for you to help somebody or not help somebody. That's not what this path is about. It's not obligating you to do something. So if you walk down the street and there's a homeless person on the street, 
you can help them if you like, or you don't need to help them also. You have complete free will and free will choices. In some situations, maybe you're able to help. In other situations, maybe you don't. But there's nothing in these teachings that are rules or obligations requiring you to do something or requiring you not to do something. In fact, these five livelihoods right here, if you're doing these livelihoods and you choose to continue to do them, it's up to you. You're going to experience the results of those decisions. Notice that nothing I said and nothing that the Buddha said in his teachings are trying to guilt you, shame you, or fear you into learning and practicing these teachings. Because we know that if you're doing any of these things, you're going to experience the results. There's no need to guilt, shame, or fear you into practicing these. So nothing is rules or obligations. So if you would like to help somebody that needs help, then you help them. If you're unable to help them or you're, or for whatever reason you're unable to help them, then you're unable to help them. And that's where your free will choice comes in because all of these teachings are all based around free will choices, right? But what the Buddha talked in terms about helping people is he talked about living open-handedly. He talked about giving and sharing and talked about the benefits of giving and sharing. It's beneficial to your mind to be generous, but you've got to find the middle way with that also, because if you never gave or you never helped anybody, then you would be very selfish. But if you helped extensively and you didn't have the resources that you need for your life, then you wouldn't be able to sustain your life. So everything with these teachings is you got to find that middle way and that middle way is always shifting. And that's why all of these teachings are based on free will choices and you're not obligated to do any one thing or another. Okay, so uh, what about uh, giving money or helping beggars? Even if one knows that uh, uh, those beggars will, uh, or maybe, uh, depend on this money or in this way to sustain life instead of looking for a new job. Maybe this is harmful for them. Everything not only is based on this middle way on this path, and not everything is only based on free will choices, but it's also based on discernment. Discernment is wise decision-making. So the Buddha isn't telling you what to do. And even though we call this right speech, right action, right livelihood, and he does use the words wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, it's really not about what's right or wrong. He's actually just explaining to you how to train this mind so that your conduct in this case isn't causing harm so no harm comes to you. So in that situation where you're talking about, you don't have to permanently help everybody that you come in contact with. That's not possible because of impermanence. But at the same time, if you never helped anybody that you were able to help, then that wouldn't be good either. And you've got to use this discernment, this wise decision making. I've been in situations where I've walked down the street and somebody needed money and they asked for money and I smelt a lot of alcohol coming off of them and I knew exactly where the money was going and I chose not to give it to them. That doesn't mean I'm a bad person. That doesn't mean I made a bad decision. That's just what I chose to do in that particular case. And then there's been other situations where I've walked down the street and a person came up asking for money and I smelt alcohol coming off of them and I told them that I wasn't going to give them money 
but I would take them into 7-Eleven or I would take them to a restaurant and get them something to eat. And they came with me and they got something to eat. So you're not going to always have a permanent decision that applies in every situation. You've got a, your own life, but you've got to live open-handedly and you need to be generous where you're not selfish, but you've also can't be overly generous where you don't have your own needs. You've got to practice this middle way with free will choices and discernment, wise decision-making. And that's why there's no judgment. Because if you were walking down the street with me as a student and a person came up to me and I chose not to give them money, that doesn't mean you should judge me and think I'm a bad person because I didn't give them money because there's certain reasons why I didn't give them money and you may or may not know what those reasons are, right? And it's based on my own personal choices. Or if I walk down the street with you and I chose to give the person money and you chose not to give them money, it doesn't mean I'm right and I'm better and you're bad. It just, that's where we are in life and there should be no judgment of me or of you in any given situation there's no obligation for us to do anything particular here. This is teachings are all guidance that if you live open handedly and you give and you share, you're going to see it's going to train your mind to let go so that this craving, desire, attachment, this holding on that the mind does, you will train the mind more and more to let go. And then you won't experience as much discontentedness. And eventually you'll get to a point where you have eliminated discontentedness 100%. Yes, uh, thanks, teacher. A uh, question from Alan. Uh, where does a career branch of uh, military, uh, like soldier, fail in uh, the right livelihood? That doesn't fall necessarily in right livelihood, you know, because being a soldier or working for the government, it's not a wrong livelihood, so to speak, right? Because there are soldiers who do uh, nursing, and they do doctor that are educators that are that are teaching right so being a soldier isn't a wrong livelihood it's not causing harm to work for the government and be a resource to help the government but if you're a type of soldier who kills now that falls under right action so if you're killing that's why when soldiers go off to war and they kill and they come back oftentimes they're affected with substance abuse issues, they're affected with PTSD, a lot of them will commit suicide. This is all their gamma because they caused harm and they killed in war, even though it was legally sanctioned by their government, right? It was legally sanctioned, but that's legal on a human level. This is like societal laws, but they can't escape their gamma. Because gamma is the natural law, which is a moral law, right? This is like above societal laws. That's why even though they have legal authority to go off into war and kill, and they're not going to be prosecuted for that, but they still get harm. Not only do they get PTSD, not only do they have substance abuse issues, not only do they oftentimes commit suicide, but oftentimes they come back with amputations or bodily harms that they incurred while they were in war, right? And this is their gamma as a result of not practicing right action. 
but it's not part of a livelihood because you can still be a soldier and not kill. Okay, David, we have a couple questions unrelated to right livelihood. Would you like to save them for a later break for questions? Um, this was actually all I was planning to talk about today. Or actually, there's one more piece that I was going to share, but we can talk about it now or afterwards. Up to you. Okay. Well, IA has a question. Is accidentally killing, for an example, an insect, or even in accidents, something which would produce bad karma? No. Here's the situation with that. Is when the Buddha talked about killing or right action in terms of this precept, right? Because the aspect of killing shows up under right action, but he really expands upon it when he talks about the five precepts. When he talks about the five precepts, he talks about living compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. And when you understand that all living beings have previously been your mother, your father, your brother, your sister or some other relative, then you start to be able to cultivate this loving kindness and compassion for all beings. Well, the goal of this path is to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance. These are the three poisons. And it's that craving, that anger, and that ignorance that motivates us to kill other beings intentionally. And having done so intentionally, you're not practicing harmlessness. And therefore, not only are you actively intentionally killing other beings, but you're also going to have problems in your relationships when you have speech and you have actions with other people. Because if you can bring yourself to intentionally kill a living being, then what's the harm in your mind in terms of speaking harshly or aggressive or hostile to people? So it's not just that you're intentionally killing a living being that is the harm, but that hatred, that anger, that ill will is going to roll over into other parts of your conduct. So if you go out on the street, and I'm sure that all of us kill insects every day walking down the street, just walking down the street, we probably step on ants every day and we kill them, but we're not doing it intentionally because we don't have that active ill will in our mind, we don't have that hatred, that anger, that ill will where we're trying to intentionally kill all these beings. We just did it by mistake or without realizing it or just as a matter of our natural daily activities. So when you clean up your conduct where you're no longer intentionally killing a living being and you can just relocate an insect outside, then by you showing compassion and loving kindness to this insect, then that's going to translate into you showing loving kindness and compassion to human beings and other animals as well. And this is going to be really beneficial for the mind because it's going to translate into all parts of your conduct. We have a question from Biplob. How can we work to increase wholesome mental states in the mind when we practice meditation to train the mind? How can we cultivate wholesome mental states in the empty mind? How do they arise in the mind if we do not make effort for them? We're going to talk about that next week when we talk about the mental discipline, Biplab, because that's our conversation next week at that part of the Eightfold Path when we talk about mental discipline. Okay, David. I was wondering, in regards to moral conduct, I suppose 
it requires a level of wisdom to practice moral conduct. Would you say that as we develop moral conduct, that also increases our wisdom such that the various factors of the Eightfold Path essentially develop one another? You need to increase your wisdom in order to improve your moral conduct. That's why wisdom is the first part of the Eightfold Path. Without the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, you would never be able to improve your moral conduct. This particular talk about moral conduct is only taking this to a certain level of depth, but we're going to be talking about this more as we go in this book, and we're going to be expanding upon this and getting really in-depth with it so you can really increase your understanding of the moral conduct. This isn't everything. Remember, this is just kind of an overview to give you insight into kind of where we're headed in this program. But it's the Buddhist teachings that eradicates this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality because the unenlightened mind is unaware of these natural laws of existence, these good, wholesome teachings that having learned them and practiced them will do things along the lines of improving your wisdom, improving your moral conduct, and improving your mental discipline. And having done that, then you're going to be practicing in the world through much more wisdom. And now, because you're not causing harm in the world, harm isn't going to be coming to you. All right, David, those are all the questions we have for now. Okay, so this last little piece is something that I put in the book Developing a Life Practice just as kind of like an adjunct to some of the teachings that I put about wrong livelihood in the book. This book Developing a Life Practice has certain level of depth that will get you really in uh, detail with the Buddhist teachings, but there's actually a whole lot more depth, and that's what this program with that we teach on Saturday, where we go back to the Buddha's words. So I couldn't put everything of the Buddhist teachings in the book that I wrote because that book was really meant to just really get you jump-started on the path. But this particular teaching is actually in Developing a Life Practice, but there's more teachings along the line of right livelihood that the Buddha talks about. But those five livelihoods, as long as you're not doing those, as long as you're not doing those five, you're not causing harm through your livelihood. But then the Buddha also goes into this particular talk on one of his other teachings where he talks about wrong livelihood at another level of detail. And he talks about scheming, talking, hinting, belittling, pursuing gain with gain, right? This is wrong livelihood. What he's essentially talking about here is like backhanded decisions and just pursuing a livelihood just for the sake of being rich and wealthy. And that's the only reason why you're doing it. And you're kind of belittling others, maybe in your same field. You think that you're so great, you're so wonderful, you have this arrogance, and you're talking down about your competitors and you're just trying to pursue gain. And you're not really looking to help people through your livelihood. What the Buddha would encourage you to do in your livelihood is to find ways to help people through your livelihood. And pretty much the vast majority of the world, every single livelihood that we have is helping people. So there should be some kind of way of you helping people through your livelihood, not just working in order to get this gain or this money. 
And therefore, if you're pursuing gain and money, you might then do this scheming and backhanded belittling and, and kind of talking down about people or slandering people as a result of you trying to get this extra gain. So this is one little extra piece of livelihood that I put into the book that I thought I would just bring out today since we're taking a bit of a deeper dive into livelihood here. Any questions on this or anything that we've talked about in this class so far? We talked about right speech. I was wondering what, if anything, the Buddha said about the listening aspect of speech. He hasn't really said much from what I've seen in terms of a listening, right? Because it's more about what we're actually doing with our conduct. He does go into a little bit about listening in terms of when he talks about what he calls honoring the six directions, which we're going to be studying when we get into the Buddha Wajana books in the Householder's Guide. I believe it's book, I think it's like book number nine or 10 or something around there, where he talks about how we should take care of our children. He talks about how we should take care of our life partner and things like this. And by us taking good care of them, they will take good care of us. And he gives kind of criteria in saying things that we should do to take care of our partners, our children, our workers, our teachers, and all these different people that make up our life. He categorizes them into six different directions. And he talks about how we should honor and practice amongst these people. So he doesn't really say too much about listening, but in that particular teaching that I'm talking about, there is some kind of things in there that kind of hint in that direction. Thank you, David. It seems like that's all the questions we have for today. All right. Well, I'll just end today's class by thanking you all for joining because each part of this Eightfold Path is leading you in the direction of improving the condition of the mind. If you walked around speaking without those five factors of well-spoken speech, then you're going to have all kinds of issues with people talking bad to you and gossiping about you and lying about you and slandering you and being harsh and aggressive with you because that's the way you're being, right? And that's going to be very hard for you to acquire a peaceful mind if you're always talking aggressive and harsh to other people because that's always what's going to be coming back to you. If you're not practicing right action and you're causing harm through your bodily actions, it's going to be really hard for you. If you're out there killing, if you're out there stealing, if you're out there having sexual misconduct, if you're drinking substances or taking substances that cause heedlessness, if you're gambling, if you're causing harm through your bodily actions, it's going to be really hard for you to get this peace of mind because you're going to have people showing up trying to harm you all the time if you're out there doing these things. If you're killing, if you're stealing, if you're having sexual misconduct, you're going to have people showing up on your doorstep or wherever you go in life trying to harm you too, right? And the same thing with your livelihood. If you're doing any of these five trades or business in any of these five ways, you're causing harm. Therefore, people are going to be causing harm to you because you're causing harm in the world as well. You're going to have police showing up. You're going to have jail time. You're going to have potentially STDs. You're going to have to be fearful and looking over your shoulder if you're doing some of these livelihoods. So it's very difficult 
it would be impossible for you to attain this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy if you're fearful and always looking over your shoulder because your moral conduct isn't purified. What this whole Eightfold Path is about is purifying the mind, and then that comes into, in this part of the path, into your moral conduct. If you're practicing good moral conduct and you're not harming others through your moral conduct, you can sleep easy at night. Because if you know the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings and you know day after day after day after day after day for many months and years, you haven't caused any harm to anybody through your conduct because you're following these teachings and you're practicing them very well, then you can sleep really well and you can go about your day and practice these teachings where you have no concerns whatsoever. For example, just recently, PayPal put a flag on my PayPal account and they wouldn't let me withdraw any funds. And it's been that way for three weeks now. And they sent me a set of questions and they were inquisitive about what am I doing in terms of the teaching because people are sending me donations. And they had all these questions and they asked me three, four, five questions. Well, right away, I know that I'm doing things on the up and up and I just replied back to them without any concerns. Well, then a week later, they sent me a few more questions that was diving into it deeper based on what I had said originally. So then right away, I just put the response together and sent it back. And then about a week later, they dove in deeper based on the questions that I answered previously. And they dove in deeper and asked them more questions. And right away, I was very easily able to provide them the information without an issue. And I sent it to them and said, here you go. Well, for me, I didn't have any problem in this multiple phase of questions that they asked because I was being truthful. I just told them that, hey, I share these teachings and people asked me a few years ago to set up a way to do donations and I set it up. I never ask for money. I never put pressure on anybody or offer money. I don't set prices for my classes, but if people are interested to make donations, it's there and they send in donations. And because I was honest all the way through this whole path, I knew that as the questions got deeper and deeper, I had nothing to fear because I know that I set things up in a proper way with good intentions. And each time that I answered their questions, I did it very truthfully. And now we're more than three weeks into this and we've had this different interactions, but I have no doubt that at some point they're going to lift the limit where I'm no longer able to withdraw any funds from my account because I've been truthful all the way through. And if for some reason they don't agree what I'm doing is wholesome, then I'll just find another provider that actually can provide a similar service. But had I lied the first time and I wasn't truthful and my moral conduct wasn't correct, when they asked those follow-up questions, I would have been caught at any point in the, the process. But I had nothing to fear because I know that I'm practicing these good, wholesome teachings of the Buddha and nothing that I'm doing in terms of my conduct, either speech, actions, or livelihood, is causing harm to anybody. And because societal laws are here and the natural law of gamma is here above that, 
I know that what I'm practicing is at a much higher level than societal laws. Because in society, you can actually legally kill somebody. But I wouldn't kill somebody, right? In society, you can actually legally have sex with someone else's partner, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I wouldn't have sex with anybody at this point, but you can legally do that. You can legally take substances that cause heedlessness. You can legally gamble and all these other things that the Buddha is talking about. But this natural law of karma, the morality of it and the practice of it is so far above any societal laws that if you're learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings, you never have to worry about any organization or any government or legal entity causing you any concern because your conduct is at a much higher level than anything that any society has written down in their laws. And you can roam about this world with complete ease and peacefulness because you know that what you're practicing is so far above and beyond anything that any society has set up in their societal laws. So as you learn and you reflect and you practice these teachings, realize that by moving up closer and closer to practicing the Buddhist teachings on this eightfold path, which is part of the natural law of gamma, this is part of what eases the mind. This is part of what creates the peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy in the mind because you never have to worry about looking over your shoulder or worrying about some harm coming to you because your practice is at such a level by the time you get to enlightenment that you're not causing harm to anything or anybody and therefore no harm is coming to you. But it's going to take you time to learn, reflect, and practice so you can see this truth for yourself. What I'm sharing with you, I know is the truth, but you don't know that it's truth yet. And you can't just believe me. You're going to need to intellectually learn, reflect on these teachings, and then put them into practice so you can see that they work yourself. And in doing so, you will clean up your life practice and then you can walk around with ease. You can walk around with this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy the more and more that you practice because you know you're not causing any harm. So therefore, no harm will come to you. So have a really wonderful rest of your day and feel free to join us this Wednesday when we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. And then on Saturday, we're going to be doing our the words of the Buddha Pali Canon and English study group next Sunday. We're going to be rounding out this three part series and finishing up with the mental discipline. This is where it's all going to start really connecting for you, because now that we've covered right view, right intention, which is wisdom, right speech, right action, right livelihood, which is the moral conduct. Now we're going to talk about training the mind and having the mental discipline to put all of this stuff into action. And then the following Sunday after that, we're going to talk about the 10 fetters, which need to be eliminated to attain enlightenment. And we're going to talk about the four stages of enlightenment and the seven factors of enlightenment. And this will really help to give you a big picture view of this entire path to enlightenment 
before we actually start with chapter one and start progressing week by week and helping you to progress towards this enlightened goal of this enlightened mind. But between now and Wednesday, be sure that you're meditating each day, either once, twice, or three times a day, and build up your practice more and more and more where you're getting closer and closer to two or three times a day with about you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes worth of meditation per session. You're welcome to join on Wednesday so that we can all meditate together and you can get some more guidance on actual meditation. That particular session is probably going to be 20, 30, 40 minutes long, and it'll be the longest session that we've done so far as part of this iteration of the group learning program as I'm slowly guiding you guys to build up to longer and longer meditation sessions. So we'll see you either Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday, and perhaps all three days. Until next time, have a really wonderful rest of your day. Remember to treat everybody polite, kind, friendly, and respectful with your speech, your actions, and your livelihood. Have a wonderful day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.